listening to the Hope Unlimited Church podcast. We are so honored to connect with you, and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. Let's get in the Word. Can we do that? All right, grab your Bible. Go to Mark's Gospel, chapter number one. Jansen, that's good, brother. Thank you. Mark's Gospel, chapter number one. And uh, I'm going to read a very familiar passage to you. I don't know if I don't know. If there's people in here from all different uh, Christian backgrounds, or maybe not even Christian backgrounds. All all sorts of faith traditions. And if you grew up like me, you do, you grew up with not a very um, what 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 is called liturgical background. You might not know what that means. You're like what? Is that a Latin word? Liturgical background, where they follow the Christian calendar and the the uh, the sacraments have. We'll talk about the sacraments later. The sacraments have meaning, and and if you were following the Christian calendar, we would be in what is known as Lent, not the thing you clean out of your dryer. L e n t. I want us to become Lentecostals. Lentecostals. And so leading up to, leading up to Christmas, well, whew, geez, I fast forwarded quick. <laughs> leading up to Easter, because that, the, only two, the only two Christian holidays we know, well, <laughs> the only three Christian holidays we know is Easter, Christmas, and the 4th of July. <laughs> uh, so uh, the, only two, the only two Christian holidays we know really is Easter and Christmas. And unfortunately, that divorces us from a whole rich history of Christian tradition. So leading up to Easter, I want to preach about Jesus. Can we do that? I want to preach about Jesus. All right, go to Mark's Gospel, chapter number one. And I'm going to read just a couple of passages to you. Mark's Gospel, chapter number one, verse one. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why I love Mark's Gospel. Straight out of the gate, boom, right in your face. He doesn't start with Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot... He doesn't start 2,000 years previously, or 4,000 years previously. That's why I love, I love Mark's gospel, number one, because it's the shortest one. I don't have to work too terribly hard to make it through. That's how you know Mark's a man. He just writes it down. So this is what Jesus did, cast out the devil. Woo, glory. Moved, went to the next town. That's why I'm thankful for Mark. But Mark's gospel is a little bit different than every other gospel. As a matter of fact, most people believe that Mark's gospel was written first. And some of the gospel writers borrowed from some of the things that Mark had taught and that Mark had recorded. But he starts out of the gate. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you, you can't just read the Bible. you got to read the Bible. And if you read that first line, it should cause us to have all sorts of questions. He starts with talking about Jesus' life, and he says, this is the beginning of the good news. Now, Within our church world, we thought the good news was Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That was the good news to us. That was the gospel. The word good news is where we get the word evangelism or evangelist. It means good news or it's also translated as gospel. Gospel means good news. It does not mean good advice. It means good news. It doesn't mean the checklist, your moral checklist of all the things you should do right and all the things you should do wrong and all the movies you can watch and all the movies you can't watch. That's not what gospel means. 
all right? Now, don't get me wrong. There are things that you don't need to watch that are hurtful and harmful to you, but that's not what gospel means, okay? And he starts off by saying, this is the beginning of the good news, and then he takes 15 chapters and teaches us about Jesus' life, not Jesus' death. We are acutely aware of how important Jesus' birth was, being born of the Virgin Mary, and we're acutely aware of how important Jesus' death was because we have a holiday to celebrate it. But we don't talk about the middle. The middle is missing. Even in the church creed, again, liturgy. Y'all don't know what the church creed is, do you? Don't worry about it. Actually, you do need to worry about it, but that's another topic for another time. The creed instantiated in the early life of the church said this. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We jump from birth to death and completely miss the middle. And we think that the crux of the middle is what Jesus taught, that he was a brilliant teacher. I've told you this before, but some people say, Jesus was such a simple teacher. Have you ever read Jesus? What do you mean he was simple? Everybody that ever heard Jesus talk had one of two responses. The first response was, what is he talking about? Eat my flesh, drink my blood, or get out of my face. Whoa. (laughs) What? There was a sower that went out to sow in all of these parables. And even in private, the disciples come to him and say, Jesus. We're a little slower than the rest of them. We need you to break this down a little bit further. I saw somebody sent me a a, a thing the other day that a pastor said, and he said, Jesus' greatest messages are the ones that even children can understand. Which ones would those be? Which one would those be? I know we're supposed to become like little children as it pertains to our faith. But if you think a child's understanding can wrap its mind around what Jesus taught, you need to go back and reread Jesus all over again. Because the first thing that Jesus, the first response to Jesus' teaching was, what is he talking about? The second response was, we know exactly what he's talking about and we want to kill him for it. Jesus was a very troublesome figure. Very troublesome. He asked, are y'all okay this morning? He asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am? They think you rose, somebody rose from the dead from the Old Testament. In one place, they called Jesus demon-possessed. You know how demon-possessed person acts? Jesus was very troubling. He's not the guy in the picture. Over the toilet in your bathroom at home with the little lamb. He leaves the 90 and 9. <laughs> he left the 99 coming for you, and he has a murderous band of raving religious lunatics behind him trying to throw him off a mountain. Right? We don't know about his life other than we know he taught some things, but we miss the impact and the meaning not just of his teaching. That's one problem, but we miss the impact and the meaning of his actions. We don't realize what he was doing when he was doing what he was doing. They wanted Jesus to come and deliver them from Rome. And Jesus comes and says, give to Rome what is due to Rome. 
And instead of delivering them from oppressive religious and state and political power, he goes throughout all the cities rebuking devils off of people's life because he's trying to highlight this is the real power that is holding you bound and keeping you oppressed. You can rail against the state, but the state and the political party and Rome is not the issue. The issue is the one that I saw fall from light like lightning straight out of heaven. And I've given you power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Jesus goes through. We love this story. We love the story where Jesus goes in and kicks tables over. Boom, just kicks tables over in the temple and starts driving people out. Before he does that, John tells a story about him hiding out, making a whip, which means this was premeditated. Sitting there just making a whip. I'm about to go off. About to set it off. And he goes in and he just wrecks havoc. And we always love that story, right? Because we're like, yeah, Jesus is mean. And we need a Jesus that's mean to justify the own violence that lives in our heart. We want Jesus to be mean so we can feel better when we're mean. And when we read the story about Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple, we are not reading him taking out vengeance on sinners. We're reading him taking out vengeance on the religious. This is what the story's trying to tell us. We are the ones that he's driving out of the temple, not them. The ones that are at peace with their own self-righteousness and feel holier than the person next to them. We're the ones getting driven out of the temple. It was exciting. It was exciting when we were talking about announcements and everything. And now it's not as exciting. We miss what he's doing. And so Mark says this, when you see his life, not just his teaching, but his actions, this is actually the beginning of the good news. The gospel is now launched way before his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel has already started. Let's see what he's talking about. Can we do that? Look at verse 9. Actually, look at verse 1 again. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Actually, I'm just going to read this whole story because I like it. Verse 2. As is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want you to think about this. Israel is looking for a sign of the Messiah. They've been waiting for over 400 years. Generation after generation after generation of prophets has prophesied is coming. They've been waiting. They're looking for a sign. And this is the sign that God gives them. A raving lunatic in the woods, wearing camel's hair, eating bugs, and saying, repent. Sometimes it don't look like what we want it to look like. And sometimes when it doesn't look like what we want it to look like, we miss the sign that God actually sent to us. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, pray the way the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer, look at verse five, and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Watch verse 9. This is what I want to get to. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens torn apart. King James says that he saw the heavens opened. Everybody say, the heavens opened. Say it, the heavens opened. And the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast and the angels waited on him. Now, typically, because we're not, we're not, we don't do a good job in church of teaching people how the Bible works. Typically, when we read this story, we fly through these bits. He was baptized. We don't really know why, because he'd never sinned, but there's that. And then the heavens were opened, which is, sounds great. And then the dove came. And there's that. And then he went in the wilderness. But we know what happened in the wilderness. That's when he said, it is written. Right? That's what we really take from this story. It's written. Defeat the devil with the word of God. That's what we take from this story. And we miss all of the little bits. We miss all of the little details. Your Bible, both Old and New Testament from start to finish, your Bible is either A, anticipating Jesus coming, or B, celebrating Jesus coming. That's all your Bible's doing. There was a church recently in this state that came out and made a, made a big splash on the news because they came out and they said, the Bible is not the word of God. The Bible's not the word of God. Now, we don't believe that. We do believe the Bible's God's word to us. Right? Do I need to be teaching something completely different? But the greatest way that we know who God is, the greatest way we know God is not the Bible. The greatest way we know who God is is by looking at Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And the scriptures testify to who Jesus is. Okay? The scriptures are God's word to us because these words testify, they bear witness to the word, which is Jesus who communicates to us who the Father is. Paul called Jesus the the visible image of the invisible God. So the entire Bible has to be read from start to finish through the lens of Jesus. Okay, we'll talk about this later at some point, I'm sure, not today. I'll teach on this at length so I can help you understand what I'm talking about. But the Bible is either anticipating Jesus coming, meaning everything in the Old Testament is pointing to him, or the Bible is celebrating Jesus coming, meaning everything after the, after the New Testament is, cha- is celebrating and praising and lauding everything that he did. It all centers on Jesus. But when we see Jesus doing these actions, going to get baptized in water, we have to connect him with what we see in the 
the old covenant. If the Old Testament was anticipating Jesus coming, and now Jesus comes and he gets baptized in water, what does that mean for us? If you were a first century Jew reading this text, are y'all with me this morning? If you were a first century Jew reading this text, when Mark starts talking about he was baptized in water, the heavens opened, a dove descended, that has powerful meaning for you. We don't pick up on the clues. We miss the clues. When it says the heavens were open, this is what he's talking about. In the old covenant, he told Israel, if you disobey me, the heavens will be brass over your head. And he called it a curse. Uh, you're going to be cursed and the heavens are going to be shut up over your head. The heavens are going to be closed over your head. But when Jesus get when Jesus is baptized and comes up out of the water, now the heavens are reopened because the, the curse is finally being removed in Jesus. You got to pick up on the details. Now, we see Jesus. Watch, y'all with me? When Jesus gets baptized, we have water. It's not a stretch, right? Water. Baptized in the Jordan River. If you've ever been to Israel, eh, river's a little bit of a stretch. It's more like a creek. And it's dirty. We have water. Then we have the spirit, like a dove. And then we have the voice. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, well, you have to run back in your mind and think, where do I see these three ingredients again? Where do I see water? Where do I see spirit? And where do I see voice? And your mind immediately runs to Genesis chapter number one. When the Bible says that the waters covered the face of the deep, we have water. And then the spirit moved on the face of those waters. Spirit. And then God said, let there be light, voice. And when you had water, spirit, and voice, out of that came original creation. And when we see Jesus getting baptized, we have water, spirit, and voice. And now he's saying, I'm bringing new creation out of that old creation. Everything is pointing to Jesus. Are you with me? I don't know why I'm preaching. On, I don't know why I'm using the term liturgy so much. But if you're from a Christian tradition that practiced liturgy, we, they were also they were also surrounded by different kinds of art. You can go see a picture. It's called a theophany. You should go Google it today. The theophany, which is an Eastern Orthodox painting of Jesus getting baptized. And in this painting, it has Jesus up to his neck in water, the spirit descending on him. But in the water are these figures that when the Eastern church, when the ancient church painted this painting, it was the symbols of the gods of chaos. And when Jesus gets immersed in water, it is symbolizing that Jesus is coming and he is submerging himself in human chaos and suffering and brokenness. The purpose of Jesus getting baptized was he was making a declaration that I am coming to be with you in your suffering and in your chaos. I'm going to get immersed into your brokenness. I'm not going to try to redeem you from heaven. I'm going to come and become just like you and then immerse myself because I'm going to redeem you from within. That's why the Bible says that we have a high priest that is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's better preaching than your amen and I'm going to tell you right now. 
I'm going to be touched. That's why it says I'm going to be touched by the feeling of your infirmities. And I'm going to be tempted in all points like you are and still not going to sin. C.S. Lewis actually taught that Jesus was tempted deeper than we are. And the reason he was tempted deeper than we are is because even in his temptation, he never yielded to it. So he felt it deeper than us. I'm going to get submerged in your suffering and in your chaos. All through the Old Testament and the New Testament, water represents chaos. All the way over in Genesis chapter 1, water represented chaos and brokenness and human suffering. That's why when you get to the book of Revelation, it says when Jesus returns and makes the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be no more sea. It doesn't mean we're going to lose the beach. We're not going to lose the beach. All right? That was a load off, wasn't it? It means human chaos and suffering is forever going to be removed. Jesus came to redeem us from within our suffering, not standing outside of it. You with me? It's like this. There's a story in the Old Testament about the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel gets ticked off, as prophets are prone to do in the Bible. Gets ticked off. And he tells himself, he can this, this little soliloquy. Big word, huh? Means, have, means talking to yourself. You're like, oh, I'll have those every morning. Way to work. When I'm sitting in traffic, I tell myself all of the things I would like to do to the person that just told me I was number one. <laughs> Ezekiel. He gets frustrated at Israel because of their sin and disobedience. And he says, I'm going to go down to the river and I'm going to rebuke every last one of them. I've had it. I'm going to chop heads off and just leave a puddle of blood and walk off. Thus said the Lord. He goes down to the river and this is what the King James says. Ezekiel went down in the heat of his spirit. Isn't that a good phrase? You ever felt that? Y'all are so holy, you're like, I don't know what he's... I mean the heat of your spirit. When you saw that Alabama Crimson Tide defeated the Tennessee Volunteers basketball team, did you feel the heat? I didn't mean to bring it like that. The heat of your spirit. Ezekiel was about to preach mad. It's not pretty when the preacher preaches mad. I went down in the heat of my spirit. To rebuke them. And this is what he says. But when I sat where they sat. When I identified with their brokenness and their suffering. He said I sat there for seven days and couldn't speak a word. When I sat where they sat. And the purpose of Jesus being baptized and becoming like us. As he was making a declaration. I'm going to sit where you sit. Because it is easy for me to cast judgment against you when I refuse to sit with you, when I refuse to submerge myself in your suffering. Now, that's what it meant for us when we got baptized. We were taught that baptism meant it was an outward sign of an inward work. That sounds wonderful. There's a problem with that. The New Testament doesn't talk about that at all. We made that up. Like we make up so much of what we believe. We made that part up. 
You ever been sitting in church and say, ooh, I don't know. I think you made that up. <laughs> I've read the Bible my whole life, and I have never heard that. I think you made that up. When Jesus gets baptized, he is immersing himself in human chaos and suffering. And then he turns around and demands that we follow him in the same obedience, saying, if you're going to follow me, you're also going to be immersed in human suffering so you can be used to redeem it. Let me throw a big word at you. You ready? This is what it means to live baptismally. Ooh, sharp. Don't ask me how to spell it. This is what it means to live baptismally. This is what it means to be Christian. But this is not our vision of what it means to be Christian. Our vision of what it means to be Christian is to get as far away from them. We think what it means to be Christian is get as far away from them as we possibly can. Because by God, we're holy. Because we think holiness is running away from you and not even living in the same neighborhood as you. And if I could, I'd move to Mars and live on a different planet than you because I'm so holy. We think that baptism is a sign, it is a mark of our elitism. That we're separate from you. And baptism is a sign that I'm following Jesus and I'm willing to get in your suffering with you to help redeem you out of it. Yes, we are called to live separate lives. We're not called to live alone. All through the New Testament, there are warnings against sin and perversion and evil. Yes, we're supposed to abstain from those things, but not so we can wag our finger at the people that are engaged in those things. We are, we are saved for them. Your baptism is not a separation. It's an immersion. And Christians, we have become, we have become so callous to the suffering of other people that we should not even call ourselves Christians at that point. I could say some stuff right now, make you mad. Well, I know your aunt died of COVID, but she had a pre existing condition anyway. That's not the point. What's the matter with you, man? Death, in all of its forms, is God's enemy. And it should be your enemy. Not that big a deal. I mean, she's going to die anyway, right? <laughs> What's your problem, man? Yeah. Uh, that's all I'm, I, I could go. Trust me. I'm editing for your sake. Because what I'm thinking is probably not fit for human consumption. But look how callous we become to the suffering of other people. talking to somebody the other day about the George Floyd incident that happened a year ago. I believe it was a year ago this week, right? Is that right? Or this, this month for sure. We were talking about that. They said, yeah, well, he was high. Maybe so. And? 
What point are you trying to win exactly? Ahmaud Arbery gets shot in the street. Well, he was breaking into the house and he was seen at a construction site. Okay. What point are you trying to win? Because we don't understand what it means to be Christian. We don't understand what it means. We don't understand what our baptism means. That I'm going to suffer with your family now. I'm going to weep with those that weep. And I'm going to rejoice with those that rejoice. Sounds an awful lot like the New Testament, doesn't it? Where he says, don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good and with the good and with goodness to everybody. And if you think that's political, you need to go read the Bible. That's not a political statement. You hear me? We are immersed in human suffering. That's what it means to be called into the ministry. Called into the ministry does not mean, what, this is what we think in the Pentecostal world. If you're called to ministry, you either preach or sing. Preach or sing. And now we've taught people in church, you can come here and discover your purpose. You can be a greeter. And help park cars. Because Christians don't know how to park on their own. And we need all those things. You're going to sign up for teams today. <laughs> right? That's not being called into the ministry. Your purpose is not to hold a microphone. Your purpose is to reflect God into the world. That's your purpose. To reflect. Oh, brother. I, I grew up in a holiness tradition where you couldn't do anything. Our holiness was defined by everything we could not do. And the less fun you were willing to have, the more holy you were. How many knows what I'm talking about? Don't. This is a saying we had. Don't drink, cuss, smoke, chew, or run with those who do. You know, I hear Donette giving me an amen back there. She knows what's up. Couldn't go to a movie theater. No. You know why? Sinners are there. Well, we're the baptized. If you understood your baptism, it drives you to where they are, not drives you away from where they are. And we're not affirming their lifestyle. We're not condoning their lifestyle. We are affirming their humanity and saying, God's called you to be an image bearer too. Can't go to a ball game. Can't go. Can't. Cannot. I had a great aunt. Aunt Bernice. That's her real name. She was about 4'11". She had never in her life cut her hair. She lived to be like 177 years old. Her hair was longer than her. But you wouldn't have known it. Because it was put in a bun. Wore a dress every day. All denim, top to bottom, down to the wrists. Couldn't wear anything above your toes. No television. The first time I went to her house, I said, And Bernice, where's the TV? And like the exorcist, her head spun around. We don't allow 
Satan into our home. I was like nine. I was like, I just want to watch some Bugs Bunny. It's simmer down. No. It's like, preacher, get up. Christians, I've been noticing y'all been smiling too much. Smiling's a sin. Laughter, sin. Enjoying your life in any level, sin. That was our definition of holiness. The more things you said no to was the more holy you were. God is not holy because he says no to ball games. We're called to be holy as he is holy. We're called to be holy as Jesus is holy. God is not holy because he doesn't have a TV. God is holy because he he is so sanctified that his life is spent sanctifying others. And when we properly understand holiness, when we properly understand what it means to reflect God into the world, your holiness is meant to sanctify and purify others, not stay away from them. Y'all know the, y'all know that, I got two minutes. Y'all, y'all know the verse when Jesus says, where they come to Jesus, they say, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God, love your neighbor. And this is how we interpret that. That God is just another person in our life that we're called to love. He's the most important person for sure. We're called to love him, so he's at the top of the list. I'm gonna love God. And we think that if we love God well, we will naturally love our neighbor. And that is not the way it goes. Christian history has taught us that is not the way it goes. Love God. Get that box checked off. And then, if there's anything left over, love your neighbor. And what he is saying is, you love me by loving them. Your love for me takes shape by loving your neighbor. What it means to follow me in baptism is it means to be be willing to immerse yourself in their suffering. To immerse yourself in their brokenness. To immerse, to saturate yourself in the broken, to stand in solidarity with him. To be immersed in the chaos that is their life. Not because you can affirm it, but so you can help redeem them out of it. This is what it means to be Christian. It's what it means. Jensen, come on up. Do you see how we've lost sight that we think we get saved? I hear this this phrase all the time. Well, brother, you're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. I agree, but you're not in the world either. We're not of the world for sure. I agree. But we're not in the world either. Because we do our dead level best to create as much separation between us and the broken as we possibly can. And the thicker that wall gets, the more Christian we call ourselves. Why do you think Jesus became human? He didn't reach out to us from heaven. He became like us. You know what, Paul Paul says something very troubling. I'm going to shut up. Paul says something very troubling. He says, God 
is reconciling the world to himself through us. Paul says, God is winning the world to himself through us. He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. You're a believer for the sake of the unbeliever. Not instead of them. You are saved and sanctified and called to live a separated life so you can serve them. Not stand in opposition to them. And before we even get to Easter and talk about the death and the burial and the resurrection and everything that means, let's start at the beginning of the good news with Mark and say, when he was baptized in water and came out, he was saying, I'm baptizing myself in your brokenness and in your chaos. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to baptize yourself in the brokenness and chaos of others. You with me? Heavens open, spirit descends. And immediately, watch, immediately it drives him into the wilderness. You have to watch what's at play here. Everybody stand up, everybody stand up. Are y'all with me? We were excited at the beginning. We ran out of gas halfway in between, I can tell. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan and then is driven into the wilderness. Where do we where do we hear? Where do we hear where do we hear Jordan in wilderness? Where do we hear that? Well, we know Israel came out of the Red Sea and went to the wilderness for 40 years and then crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Everybody look at me. Israel out of the Red Sea through the wilderness for 40 years and then cross Jordan into the promised land. And Jesus leaves the promised land, goes through the Jordan, and then goes into the wilderness because the failure that wilderness had in the wilderness, Jesus is going to redeem it and make it right. He's going to make it right. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. He was there for 40 days. These all have meaning. You know, when, when Israel crossed the Jordan they crossed over on dry land but when Jesus crossed the Jordan it didn't part for him when the Jordan closed back up it drowned Israel's enemies Israel crossed on dry land Jordan closed up drowned the enemies but when Jesus was baptized the Jordan never parted we get to walk on dry land through the Jordan. Jesus identified with our enemies so we could identify ourselves as God's friend. This is what it means. If, if, if I preach this right, if I preach this right, I don't know if I did or not, but somebody would say, I need to get baptized again. I'm going to the house filling up the bathtub. Whew baptize myself in the chaos and suffering of human of humanity 
That's what it means to live baptismally. That's what it means to be, watch me now, Christian. And this hardening, this hardening, this detachment from human suffering is not God. We think we will redeem them by separating from them and yelling out judgments and threats. You better get right. You can come to the altar, but there's no room for you at our dinner table. Till you get it right at the altar, you're not welcome at my table. number four. You know the story of Zacchaeus, wee little man, wee little man was a climbed up in for the Lord. He wanted to see. Y'all, know what I'm Y'all didn't have sons. Zacchaeus is a wicked, corrupt businessman exploiting people, exploiting the elderly, stealing money from the elderly to make himself rich. He wants to see Jesus, but Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. And Zacchaeus has to climb up in a sycamore tree to see him. Surrounded by people. But the people surrounding Jesus didn't look like Jesus. So he had to take matters into his own hands. Because the people that were surrounding Jesus were called to reflect him. And we are surrounded by Zacchaeus who's trying to see Jesus and can't because we're in their way. We're in their way. It's going to be a fun month as we lead up to Easter. This is our this is our calling. God is working for our good and we work for the good of others. hear that? Lift your hands to the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning. And God, allow us to feel. Allow us to see. We've lived separated in all the wrong ways. Yes, we're called to live separated from sin but we're not called to live separated from their suffering. And Jesus, we repent. We thank you that you came and you immersed immersed yourself in our brokenness so we can immerse ourselves in the brokenness of others. So like Ezekiel, we can sit where they sit. We can weep with those that weep. We can rejoice with those that rejoice. We ask you to forgive us for the hardening of our hearts, for the callousness toward people and toward suffering and toward brokenness. Where we've turned a blind eye and a deaf ear, where we can't be bothered by what is destroying other people. We repent. Make us like you. Help us to live baptismally. 
make us like you. And the church said, amen, amen, amen. God, now I've got to make this statement because people hear things certain ways. God is for us, all of us. God is for the people that don't look like you. God is for the people that don't worship like you. God is for the people that are not your race. God is, not for the, God is for the people that are not your gender. God is for the people that are not even your sexual orientation. Okay? Am I affirming that lifestyle? No, I am not. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm affirming them as humans, though. Right? Now, God is for us. God is against sin in all of its manifestations because sin works against us. God does not want to destroy us. God wants to destroy what is destroying us, which is sin and evil. God hates what harms us and God hates it when we harm others. Jesus' baptism means, if I've not said it but 500 times already, that I'm not separated from your suffering. I'm not ignoring your pain. I'm immersing myself in it so I can lead you out of it. That's what being Christian. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to give, please visit hopeunlimited.church slash give. To stay connected, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hope Unlimited Church.